Greetings, podcast listeners. You're listening to the Colorado Review podcast in partnership with the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University. Before we get to our talk with Danny Tiemann, here's our inaugural launch of our mini-series featuring a short interview with MFA fiction student Megan Lear. We are launching our mini-series, which is going to be a series of ongoing interviews with current MFA students here at CSU. Today, kicking us off is Megan Lear, a second-year fiction student in our MFA program. Megan is not only a writer here in our program, but she also is the graduate student advisor for the undergraduate literary journal, Gray Rock Review, here at CSU. Uh, She's also an editorial assistant here at the Colorado Review. Uh, Megan, can you tell us what kind of work you were doing at the Center for Literary Publishing this past summer and what you learned? Well, we did all sorts of things. Mostly we worked on copy editing and typesetting the 2021 Colorado Prize for Poetry winners poetry collection called Study of the Raft. Um, We worked on copy editing all of those pieces and typesetting them into the book itself. We also copy edited and typeset the fall-winter 2021 issue of Colorado Review. That's awesome. Both were very, very fun. Can I just ask, so for people who are listening who might be interested in a career in publishing one day, does editorial work feel like a totally different part of your brain than writing, or does it over time start to sort of activate your writer imagination in ways you might not have anticipated? I I think it does both. I would certainly say it's a different part of the brain, but a different part of the writing side of the brain. Uh, and I think it absolutely did uh, does bleed into like your creative side after copying for quite a while in the most positive ways where now I'm thinking about all of the commas that I'm putting in or the M dashes and I'm being really mindful of my colons, um, among other things. I had lunch with someone in the program actually yesterday at Starry Night and they told me that in my manuscript I use commas very intelligently. So maybe you could inform me one day after this interview how I might take that, (laughs) what it might mean. Okay. Uh, And are you considering a career in publishing down the line? I am. I I would love to get into publishing. I I think that's why I love working so many hours here at the Tiley House. Um, I just love the environment and the work that we do here. And what was your most fun or rewarding experience here at CLP? When we were reading for the Nelligan Prize, we uh, we were all, you know, reading, reading the cue for the, the fiction and, and short stories. Um, and there were a few stories that um, I'd selected that I wanted to be read further by the finalist or the final judges. And um, there was one story called Nocturne that made it fairly far. And that piece will actually, I think, be in the spring 2022 issue of Colorado Review. And I, before I left... Working for the summer at Tiley House, I actually had the opportunity to copy edit it first. So that was really cool. And I'm excited to see it in print. Do you feel if a piece that you initially discovered, once it makes it farther along in the selection process, do you start to feel a kind of excitement in like looking back in the queue and seeing like, oh, did anyone did anyone else see this oh, thing certainly. that I saw? I, um, I actually... I don't know if this is embarrassing or not, but I actually went and frequented the the Nelligan Prize queue, um, even on days that I wasn't supposed to be reading for it, just to see if some of the stories that I upvoted were downvoted, if they're still in the queue waiting to be read again. Yeah, so watching one story make it pretty far and seeing that a lot of other people liked it too is always exciting. I think it sort of also affirms that you know what you're looking for when you're reading in the queue. 
That's awesome. And it definitely reaffirms the kind of sense of community and connection to our writers that we that who do contribute to Colorado Review. Yeah. It's not just the process of one person reads and then it goes and disappears off into the ether, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so we'll do a fun speed round here. Things that I just want to know about you. I feel like I should know the answer to these questions mm-hmm. since we've been working together for a year. So your favorite novel um, that you've recently read or a favorite novel of all time, what would that be? Oh, of all time, I don't know. Something I recently read, though, is um, Perfume by Patrick Susskind, which is a really great novel about um, this uh, orphan named John Baptiste, and he's born in, like, the slums of, uh, of France in this really awful fish market sort of place. But he's born with, like, this, this great sense of smell, and it, he makes it his life's mission to, um, like, make the best perfume in the world according to his own sense of smell. And it's, uh, I, I would call it a horror novel. It's, 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 it's really great. Okay, a favorite short story or a favorite essay or poem you've recently read? I, I recently reread Donald Barthelme's 40 Stories, his short story collection, one of them after 60 Stories, which has 60 short stories. This one only has 40, but inside of it is a really great short story called Rebecca. I think her full name is Rebecca Lizard, and she is green, and she really struggles with her appearance. So I'll take the pressure off and not ask you to <laughs> rethink through everything you've ever read. Um, so an interesting writing routine or habit that you I have. I try to write every night, which means that uh, I'm often turning on a lot of lamps. But next to my lamps, I like to set a candle. And I think the idea started uh, with me just wanting to burn a spearmint and eucalyptus candle for stress relief. It turned into me just wanting to sometimes doze off into the flame. So that's, I, I, I usually write a candle, um, and if I'm staying up for a few hours writing, like maybe three or four into the night, it's nice to have something kind of burning alongside you and take a break and just look at the fire and don't touch it. <laughs> that's really good advice. When did you decide you wanted to be a writer? That's a really good question. I don't think I decided. I think it was just at a certain point in my life, I was like, okay, well, now we're going to follow this life path. And this is the life path that I'm going to have to take if I want to pursue writing in a more serious way, i.e. we're both here because we've uprooted lives from different coasts of the United States. And now we're both on this path together. I don't think it was a moment, but I, I think it's just at a certain point, I was very ready to be serious about it. And finally, a favorite memory at CSU thus far? This could be related to writing or, or not. In a perfect world, I'd say starting my, my thesis. I, I think honestly, though, amid the pandemic and everything, I loved going out to Avos after workshops. And I, I think that's like the, the best part of or the most fulfilling part of the community that you get to see where everyone after workshop just sort of goes to Avos. And we have fun and have a drink and typically don't talk about writing. Yeah, I, I'd say the social social aspect is my favorite. Thanks for listening to our first miniseries episode with Megan Lear. Now on to the show. Today we'll be talking with Danny Tiemann, whose short story One Bad Night in San Jose, Costa Rica, won the 2021 Nelligan Prize for Short Fiction. Danny Tiemann is the recipient of the 2020 Tobias Wolf Prize for Fiction from the Bellingham Review, an award for new writers from New York City's Table 4 Foundation, and a Madeline Lamont Award for Fiction from the American University in Cairo. His writing has appeared in the New Delta Review, The Bosque Review, Your Impossible Voice, The Beloit Fiction Journal, and Guernica Magazine. 
Danny is a senior associate attorney working with the International Program at Earth Justice. Today, Danny and I will talk about the role of ancestral history in landscape and writing, how intuition informs craft, and how surrealism can illuminate the experiences of immigrants and first-generation Americans in fiction. I read, Danny, that you were an attorney and a writer. I thought to myself, every time I make an excuse that I don't have time to write, I should think of Danny Tiemann. And can you just talk to me about your work and interests in environmental law? Do you draw material from your life in law, or do you find you have to do some compartmentalizing between the two? Well, I just want to first uh, start by saying thank you so much for the, the very thoughtful questions you've sent along. And it's, it's just great to be here uh, speaking with you. There's a, a writer, Roberto Lovato, who's, who's, who's actually taught a class that helped me think about this question. It was a class called Writing in a Time of Crisis, where we actually talked a lot about this kind of, you know, compartmentalizing what he calls lowercase c crises or personal crises. And, and he really pushed us to see how these, you know, personal crises in our life are connected to what he calls like capital C crises. So, so Roberto Lavado is author of uh, Unforgetting, a memoir about family, gangs, migration, and revolution in Latin America. Yeah, he teaches classes to the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco, I think. If you ever have a chance to take a class with him, highly recommend it um, and, and definitely check out his book. The way that he taught me to think about that question was for me really powerful in thinking about stories because I do have a tendency myself to compartmentalize. And he really pushed us, you know, by having us read through all this old literature about like stories from the underworld about these kind of journeys, kind of personal journeys of crisis. You know, he, he showed a lot of these stories where we're talking about personal crisis, how they always are connected to, to, to larger crises that in my work through environmental law and, and, and I started out as a migrant farm worker advocate, you know, I'm, I'm trying to address. So I think that's a, a bit of a long way of saying that I, I have a tendency to compartmentalize, but that I think some really great writers have shown me that, you know, Sometimes you do that at your peril of ignoring the stuff that's really interesting about stories, right? Power and privilege and revolution really are, are there where you're looking at how these personal crises are formed. I mean, I, I think one of your first questions was just about my interest in environmental law. And I, I got here in a bit of a roundabout way. I, I started my career as a farm worker advocate with the Oregon Law Center based out of Hillsborough, Oregon, a small little town just, um, just to the west of, of Portland. And that was really where I kind of just learned a lot about what, you know, Roberto Lovato calls the big C crises. You know, we, we would fight wage theft for farm workers. You know, sometimes that would be just outright, outright theft or, or kind of disguising it through deductions, um, you know, tens of thousands of dollars from, from um, you know, communities that, that put food on our tables, you know, every month. And we did some great work, you know, getting, getting money back for families out there. But, but that would, then we also started to see some really interesting things um, tied to climate change, which is what I work on now. But like, even in the time I was in Oregon up there, it started to get hotter. And because of that, you know, these growers would start building these like quarter mile long hoop houses over their, their crops. And then you would see female farm workers have a lot higher incidence of sexual assault because they're like hidden from view. Um, you know, the winners, the winners weren't as 
as cold as they used to be. So pesticide applicators had to um, spray more pesticides. And, and you know, there was one instance of a gentleman who sprayed so much pesticides, you know, it was kind of leaking on his back. He complained, got fired. He ended up just kind of sitting on a kind of gold, cold, gray, misty beach on, on a lonely part of Oregon's coast without a job. He ends up working on this fishing boat, you know, that get, hires him when he's out there that gets lost out at sea. He ends up in Astoria in a Costco parking lot working in a cannery. And so you have like these like big sea climate crises that, you know, then end up directly, you know, impacting people and, and their personal lives. And, and so, you know, I, I myself, I, I don't always try, I don't usually focus like on like an environmental issue in a story or a racial uh, issue or economic issue in a story, but it's there in the background. And I think like the more that I try to try to try to learn more about the world, I, I, I try to, um, yeah, I, I think in my stories that I, they, that they're there and, and, and that they more and more form like a connective tissue, I think, you know, driving, driving motivations for characters or, or whatnot. It's so fascinating to me that you bring this up because I'm, I teach composition and I'm, and our theme for the year is health and well-being, And I'm trying to get them to see how different types of health or lack of health, like environmental health, public health, um, mental health, how they overlap, which there was some confusion about. And now that you're talking, I'm like, you know what, this is where I need to come in as a creative writer and explain how storytelling is what actually makes that clear. <laughs> so that really actually clarified something for me as a teacher. And I love when that that happens where I think I'm just thinking about writing today, but like, actually I learned something as a teacher. So thanks. <laughs> you can thank Roberto Lovato. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our teachers just live in yeah, us. Exactly. That's such a great way to phrase it. They really do. Mm-hmm. And actually what you were just saying about the kind of capital and lowercase crises, your uh, the story that we're going we're gonna to talk about your Nelligan prize winning story shortly, but I read Echolocation for Mixed Race Runaways. And there's just this sense of surrealism in there for me. You know, we open with this image of one of the characters speaking insults into the air to help their way home. And that, that continues as a motif throughout the story. And then this kind of really heartbreaking idea of scanners being used by ICE to check for citizenship and genes and all that's coming together. And I guess now that you talked about your work, um, I get a sense of where that intuition is certainly coming from. But I guess I'm asking if surrealism has a function unique to immigrant stories. My, my initial reaction is that not not something unique to immigration stories, surrealism, right? But But Sometimes, um, you know, for me, I find that phrase, I, I don't know how that goes, but something like that the, the future arrives, the, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. So, for example, my farm worker work, you know, this was 20, 2014, and we, we would work with um, shepherds out in eastern Oregon who were on work visas, and they would be denied water so that they had to drink the water they recycled from their bath. As they as they kind of eked out this existence on the high plains of of eastern Oregon, um, so that they wouldn't complain about wage, wage theft and, and long working conditions, and would be you know taken to the, the local Walmart only once a month for provisions and not allowed to call home, you know, so something like that might sound to some people like oh that doesn't happen today, right? 
So I, I think sometimes that surrealism and, and sci-fi elements in, in my stories are, I don't think they're unique, but I think what I'm trying to get at is that sometimes Black Mirror-esque technologies tend to fall on those who who aren't in these interviews, uh, right, as much, um, or who aren't, you know, appearing in 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 the page, you know, on, on stage and theater or in literary journals as much. That that the future's here. It's just it hasn't arrived, it hasn't been distributed equally. And I, I think there's a risk there that you know sometimes just telling a story honestly, truthfully, without any surreal elements can have a more powerful effect. And so I, I um, like recently I tried writing a story that had a little bit of absurdism in it. And I think it actually was detracting from, from some of the emotional intensity I was, I was hoping to get at. And so I, I think as a writer, I'm still trying to learn about how you use realism and surrealism to f- effectively convey an emotional experience. I feel like I could I could talk about echolocation for a whole other interview probably, uh, <laughs> but our, our listeners are here to also hear um, from the story that won uh, the Nelligan Prize for Short Fiction here at Colorado Review. We're here to talk about One Bad Night in San Jose, Costa Rica, and I used to offer context to listeners, tell them sort of the situation that the story finds itself in, but I always felt weird about that. I'm just, you know talking about this person's story who's sitting right here listening to me and they would just tell it better. So, uh, so Danny, can you, can you do that for us? Sure. A main part of this story I wrote after I lost my dad in 2020. Um, so he died right as the uh, pandemic was starting um, in Costa Rica and there on the flight home, I was really upset and, and pretty broken. And I was listening to this um, talk by Daniel Evans, or I should say the Daniel Evans, just a short story writer that I admire greatly. And she was in this panel discussion where she had this line where she was like, there's a period of life where the anxiety is about the choices that we make. And then there are periods of life where the anxiety is about the choices we don't have. And, you know, my, my dad and I were really close for most of my life. And then the last 10 years, it was a pretty difficult relationship. And so I was suddenly left with this anxiety of, about the choices I, I didn't have, like, I, like, you know, you know, how to forgive him and how often or when and how to remember the mean things I said or the things that we could have done. And so I think a lot of the story came out of, of that, you know, it makes me think of, she's like a, like a, a therapist and a, a writer on eco grief, I think is how she frames, frames it. Her name's Britt Ray. And um, she has this line where she's like anxieties or anxiety or grief is merely a sign of attachment to the world. And I felt that so much, especially after kind of being on the outs with my dad for a while, seeing that attachment was um, through grief, I guess, was really powerful. Um, so part, parts of the story were written before he died, but the final form didn't really come together until, until afterwards. And I was trying to, trying to figure out how to, to make the story work and had all these fragments of stories with nowhere to go. And it was almost like this absence of this important person in my life was what gave the prior, these prior experiences of like story fragments I'd written, uh, almost like gave them a body to, to breathe themselves into being. So it's, it was written, um, uh, yeah, in about 2020, about the about the start of the pandemic around that time. This is totally an aside, but one of the things they tell us here at Colorado Review when we're reading for submissions is, you know, because we're getting a lot of pan- pandemic 
situated stories. So some of them are just really trying so hard, but the way that you placed it in this context, it was so subtle and true and without, without pretension or cleverness kind of thing. I think you have a line that is, you were expecting there to be a mask on the body. <laughs> right. right, right. I was yeah. cackling in that <laughs> reading room causing a ruckus. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was so beautiful and, tra- and tragic, but so it was so true. Yeah, it was such a bizarre experience because my dad was alive in December of 2019, last time I saw him. And then I got the phone call that he was dying. I was actually on the phone when he was dying. And, and I think a lot of the stories I write are about kind of, I don't know, power futility of language. And I felt so helpless. I couldn't say anything to change what was going on. But it was so weird because like they just, it was going to be too hard bureaucratically to ship his body back home. So they just cremated him. And um, just for a number of family circumstances, I'd never actually seen a family member laid out in a casket till my grandma passed away this summer, just um a month or so ago. And that was the first time I actually saw someone laid out. So I remember having that thought about my dad. I was like, if, if he would have been laid out, right. Like would I have, you know, cause, cause by the time, you know, we, we didn't really get to have a service for him until much later because of the pandemic. And that's kind of when I had the thought, I was like, man, if they had laid him out, yeah. Would I, would I have almost expected a mask to be there? <laughs> Uh, which is such a such a morbid thought, but uh, but but probably in in line with his sense of humor. I I was thinking about uh, how because in in my family at least, so everyone wants to be buried in the old country. So when you said that he wants to, be, they couldn't ship his body. I was like, I felt like I was listening to the contents of my mind, and it's just something interesting to me about being like first generation American. And I don't know if you share this thought, but I often think about the things that people who have been in this country just don't, for many generations, just don't have to think about. Like, like my grandmother is buried in the Jewish cemetery in Uzbekistan, where my family is from, and everyone, pretty much all the elders want to be buried there. And I've never been to a family member's grave because they're all in their country. And I guess when you were speaking, I was thinking about how we turn these, these kinds of inevitabilities, but also tragedies of migration into, we try to make it into something beautiful on the page. I don't know if it can be. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I, what you said about having to think about things that other folks um, don't have to think about or take for granted. I mean, I definitely, it definitely resonates with me a lot and 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 makes me like randomly super emotional sometimes at unexpected moments <laughs> like I, I was watching I can't remember the name of the movie it's uh with Aquafina the rapper actress um where her they, they lied to her grandma like like don't tell her that she has cancer um they like keep it a secret from her but but in 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 that movie there's this like scene where I think she's just like driving to the airport to leave, um, to come back to America maybe. And she's just noticing like all her old stomping grounds are just now like these random like convenience stores and like like buildings over places that didn't used to be there. And like that, that experience of, of not seeing a place that's so sentimentally important to you 
for so long or not seeing it at all, maybe in your case, right, for the, for the grave, graveyard, and then to have it just kind of be forgotten by the landscape before you personally forget it in your mind, I think it's like such a strange experience. Um, and, and I could almost imagine for your experience, like if you did get to go to that cemetery, it would almost like be that process in reverse of like, like you have this thing imagined in your mind and then it's actually getting built up by the place. Like it, it would almost be like that Aquafina movie moment in reverse, right? Like the landscape's actually adding to your, your imagination rather than subtracting. I'm so glad you brought up imagination too. I feel like our imaginations have to do a lot of work to fill in a lot of history that we don't get just being the first generation in America. I'm excited to hear actually about how visiting, because you visited your grandparents um, in Costa Rica in the summers. Did the landscape there make its mark on your mind very early on? Did it coincide with your journey becoming a writer? I, th I think so. There, I was listening to a, to an interview with with with, with a, a poet actually this morning who talked about. Oh, I'm I'm trying to remember his name, Garth Greenwell, who noted like when he was in Bulgaria, English was like this really private uh, language he got to have for himself at the end of the day. Like he was in Bulgaria all day, and then he like got to be just in English alone. And I definitely I think that maybe heightened like my interest in language because I'd be in, in Costa Rica, you know, speaking Spanish all day with, with everyone. And then like reading, you know, books, like I remember like reading like Brief Wonders Life of Oscar Wow and books by like Julio Cortázar and, and Borges, like, um, but I would be reading them in English, um, even though these writers are, in, are also Spanish speaking. And I, but I remember, yeah, like, I think a landscape and language together would, would kind of highlight my I guess interest in writing. I think, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's there's some there's some writers like who talk about even just that like in the U in the U.S. Right. Like this is a conversation about like cross border, but like like uh, there's a nature writer like Amy Walden has like she's from the South and and wrote about like she like would then live in the North and when she'd come back to the South, how the landscape would take one emotion that she had been feeling you know, in one kind of geographic location and then like sharpen it into another emotion. Like when she was down there, like all of a sudden it would be this other flavor. And like that rang so true with, to me about how um, I remember, you know, I either having a certain tension in my relationships or joy in my in relationships with family and like how those would sharpen or diffuse, like when we change landscape or place. And so, yeah, I think I was always really interested in about how being in a different geographic landscape and language yeah, can like sharpen or make fuzzy, you know, uh, the relationships you have with folks. Gosh, I feel like this is just a crash course in like craft and <laughs> how craft like not lives in us, but, you know, it comes from an intuitive place, you know, like a good story writing for me, it feels like it's already been there inside you. It's waiting to come out. You know, you just got to kind of find the right way to tell it. Um so you have, I'm interested to talk a little bit about how you mentioned distance um, and distance comes up a lot. The two stories I've read of yours, there's this, actually this really great line by Carmen and who she, what she's telling to her son. And, and it's that a lover is like a searing made of intimacy and distance. 
and that she likes him better far away. And then the son in his section, he he's talking about how he wants to become a stranger to know her better. <laughs> so my readerly experience of that, which I don't think I've ever quite had this experience with any other story. And it was that these two characters have the same kind of knowing, like they've come to the same conclusion of what love is but they don't even know the other knows it (laughs) could you talk a little bit about those those characters yeah i i think this is a really interesting question i i find it really hard to answer um because i i think at a very visceral level it's like i like my mom was just visiting and you know, I, I, I feel such an intense love and appreciation for her. Um, and it's wild to me that we're not just like at each moment, just like shouting for that the joy of each other's company and just like, why are we doing, why are we going grocery shopping? You know, and I just find it such a strange experience to be next to someone you have such an intense kind of love and appreciation for even though that is informed by such different histories. And my mom, my mom's history is so wild. I mean, this is kind of getting to your point about arriving at the same understanding of love from different experiences. But like my, you know, my mom, she, I mean, her, her family had a, a just a wild history in, in Costa Rica of like they had a, a cotton farm and then and then that was lost to like gambling and a fire. And then my my her dad was like a, a taxi driver when the the airport was still um for Costa Rica was still just like a grass field and like she she was involved in like all this like anti-US like communist activism that you know led you know my and my grandpa my grandpa was like a, a, a uh, exile from Nicaragua from fighting there and had to change his name and I don't know they just have like all these wild histories and, that are so different from like my Irish German side of the family that has their own wild histories I think just a little further back in, in time that I don't know as well but, but yeah, I just find it such a strange experience for two people to like have such different long lives to feel the same understanding of an intense emotion and then to just like not acknowledge it. <laughs> um, and I think that's kind of what I'm getting at when I, that maybe you're picking up on in the story. I, I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I I, I think, I, I guess that that to me is, is, one way to try to get at the question but I think it's such an important one and I I didn't really see that until you pointed it out and I think it's actually something I really want to explore more in stories is is just how people kind of arrive at similar understandings of emotion but almost either can it communicate it to the other person because of those differences and how they understood it or almost are like denied even from feeling it fully you know because it's just so hard to like connect across the difference. So I just wanted to say I super appreciated that question because I think it's something that I really want to think about in in future stories. In creative writing, but also in composition, we talk so much about how writing is a social act. Um, I just had a colleague in workshop say, you know, no piece is the result of like one mind or one heart really like, cause we're all in conversation, working with other writers all the time. And I have no doubt I'm going to hang up today, get on my computer and write something down. And somehow your voice is going to ring in there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's that's a lot of joy for me. I feel like I'm somewhat 
lighter note too. I was so curious about setting in this story. It just seemed not not random. There is a there's an intention behind it. And I after you're done with the story, you're like, oh, of course it's in a KFC. Like where else would a conversation like this happen? Um, <laughs> But I'm just curious about, did you experiment with where to place these people in their world in Costa Rica? Or was it just like, no, we're putting them in in a KFC? So fast food chains in Costa Rica have a a bit of an interesting history because I I really don't think it was until CAFTA, like the, the, the Central American version of NAFTA was signed that like these places were even allowed to really open up there. Or maybe they were, but they just weren't super common. But essentially there was a long time in my I don't know how there was there was a decent amount of time in my like childhood where these fast food st- like restaurants just weren't there or maybe I just didn't notice them but but now now there's like I guess some different agreements that have been signed and so they're like they're like um, they're everywhere you know and, and when they were first opening up they were the place like McDonald's was the place where you would go have a fancy date like if you wanted to go on a date and you wanted to treat someone right right you would go to the you would go to the McDonald's the the, the Burger King um, or the, the, there was a KFC, right? And so, you know, I always thought that was so interesting because like in Cincinnati where I grew up, you know, it's fast food. It's, it's not the, the fancy place. And that kind of taking something ordinary and like making it a place of like celebration felt felt right for this story where this character is trying to treat herself is trying to treat herself right you know and this is this is where she would go to so i uh i, I met my my wife in costa rica and we did not go to kfc for our first date but um but i think she would have understood if i would have taken her i hope so at least <laughs> that moment where we have this brilliant snapshot of who Carmen is I I feel is when she looks at her son and she's it's in response to some kind of put down and she says something like oh he's just like his dad so it's like kind of painting her in this kind of very harsh harsh light and then and then Sonia puts the narrator down again and then the mother turns around and says why don't you defend yourself don't let her insult you like that and I just thought that was such a masterful use of dialogue I guess if you want to talk about how you produce both realistic dialogue but rich dialogue that's also economical I don't know what do you how do you make some dialogue do you just carry I, on a notebook and listen to your mom I don't know <laughs> I I wish I could say this is like my master mastering of dialogue but it's not it's it's more just a like I just untrustworthiness of myself like I I feel like the older I get and the more I learn about like why like my my dad and I have fought or why at times you know my mom and I have not been on good terms or the more I just see myself as a completely unreliable judge of character and like unreliable like I don't know my 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 I I just don't really trust my assessments of of others and and I I find that I, I think this moment that you're pointing out to is that like I think what I, where it probably came from is because I, and the characters in this story, they, they see, they see each other one way, but they, they almost all of them don't really, don't really know who the other person is, right? They're only really seeing like a 
part of that person and and they they even kind of like know that they they're like will, willfully ignorant so um but because that willful ignorance suits their emotions in the moment they like it so they just hold on to it but but then they slip right like like they want they and I, I find this happens at least in my relationships where people will want to be angry or something and then an apology almost like slips out and they're like, ah, oh, shit, you know, I want to take the apology back or so, you know, like some kindness slips out and it's, it's, it's like an oops. And, and, but then those, those, those fissures or oops are, are the only way that sometimes people heal. I mean, this is a very Midwestern response to the question. Like since, you know, growing up in, in an Irish Catholic, you know, Cincinnati home where like confrontation and conflict are like avoided at all costs and, and things like, you know, talking honestly about feelings is, is you know so the kind of slip-ups I feel like are where movement happens sometimes and I think that's where that dialogue piece is coming from and you know like talking about the Midwest makes me think of Chicago which makes me think of Ira Glass which who has this this quote that like arguing is the most intimate thing two people can do and like I just love that quote because I think it's so true and I think it's you know in, in both of these stories that the, the echolocation from mixed race runaway is the one that you had mentioned earlier, which is a story about a mom who's navigating this dark city and shouting insults out into the air as a form of echolocation to help her navigate her world. And in, in this story here, you know, insults and arguments are a big part of it. And I think I think that's why, right? Because I think at least for this Midwestern mind that I have, it's like it's it's the arguments and the slip-ups where, where movement happens. I think this relates to the form you chose too. So we have the perspective and the title of the first section, the mother and then son and then the interpreter who's Sonia, the son's ex-girlfriend. And so it's, it's just, what, what it does for me is it really creates a filter that I'm aware of as a reader. Um, there's an awareness that I have that what we're getting right now is Carmen's take on her son as a mother. And that reminder is just really important because in life, I feel like we just forget all the time that the burdens and the, and the roles that people take on and, and the duties that people have to perform because of those things are affecting every single interaction. And we want to believe that we get in front of us the whole person all the time, but that's impossible. We just combust. <laughs> we have to get a filtered something. Exactly. I, I wish I could say it was like all there from the start. And I had this, I, I struggle most with form. I struggle most with form. I, I, I stumble my way into search stories through the grains of them are often just like, oh, this, this line, like, this is like a nice sounding line and, and, or maybe a moment, you know, and, and form is so hard for me. But I, I think, I think where it came from was, is that I had like the, the first part written the mother's part but it 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 was for a just really short <laughs> b it didn't feel full like it didn't feel like it told the whole picture and and also i i struggle a lot with like um like myself like writing like third person narrative where where the i um even if it's a fictional i isn't implicated in the story like i feel very uncomfortable even writing fiction about based on experiences of other people in my life, if even a fictionalized version of myself isn't blamed somehow or implicated or at fault somehow in what's going on in, in this, because um, <laughs> because I just, I find it, I don't know, I find it even more untrustworthy or 
I, I don't know. I, I struggle with I, I struggle with that third person narrative voice, and I think especially as like the national conversation around privilege identity it evolves, that that really speaking from that I perspective, even if it's a fictionalized one, I think that gets at the a lot of the interesting stuff that stories are about, right? I think the choice to have the second part, the son, came out of this just uncomfort I have with that third person narrative voice. And then the, the interpreter part was that, you know, one of my first, my, my dad, when I was little, had like a language school and a translation business. And I worked as an interpreter in like tuberculosis clinics and in, in other places. And like, had you know, I find transla translators uh, who, who work live, like facilitating things very interesting. And as soon as I added the second part of the sun, I realized like, well, this is a, this is a story about translation. It's a story about um, two perspectives and why not give the perspective of the translator that, that adds a lot to it. And so it, 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 it then clicked. And I love that Sonia gets to tell her own story with some caveats, but that really was, that was amazing for me. I, and, it, and it was surprising. It felt like that surprising sort of inevitability, that contradiction they always talk about. For kind of coming to the end, I was thinking we could just hear a little bit about what you're working on right now. I'm trying to get enough stories for like a short story collection, but I, I am a really slow writer. It takes me a long time, not because I, I'm like so precious about the words that, that are on the page, but just like finding the time to write is really hard, but trying to get to enough to a collection. And right now I'm um, working on a story that kind of imagines like, you know, if my, I have ancestors in, in Ireland and also in, in Nicaragua, two places where colonizers or oppressed oppressors came in and learned the language of locals and um, imagining, you know, what if, what if my ancestors had um, in both Ireland and, and Nicaragua had kind of translated their languages for that power unfaithfully in ways that kind of messed up uh, those languages in, in ways that gave them kind of powers or something. So yeah, still, still writing a lot about language. Thanks for listening to this month's episode. Stay tuned for our next episode featuring creative nonfiction writer Matthew Gavin Frank for a conversation on his latest book, Flight of the Diamond Smugglers. <laughs>